We're going to sue them? <laughs> I'm kidding. Legal team saw it. <laughs> Lawyer rock. And here it is once again, 32 Thoughts, the podcast presented by the all-new GMC AT4 lineup. A little bit later on towards the end of the podcast, you will hear from Calgary Flames Assistant General Manager, Craig Conroy, who is one of the most engaging, at times funny, Elliot, I think we're all on the same page about that, people in hockey. And listen, I remember him as a player uh, with the Calgary Flames, with the Los Angeles Kings, the St. Louis Blues, hardworking, two-way center and someone that when he made the transition into management, we said, you know what? That kind of fits for Craig Conroy. So you're going to hear from him a little bit later on. In the meantime. And he thinks one of my awards picks is stupid. And if he knew more of your awards picks, he would say there are more than one that he thinks <laughs> are stupid. But you only shared one. We got to start with a so what's next question. The Vegas Golden Knights. What now, Elliot? Maybe we should back up and say what happened before we say what's next. I'm not really sure where to jump in here on Vegas because there's a lot of entry points this season for the Vegas Golden Knights. I'll, I'll let you choose from the uh, the buffet of choices. I knew, obviously, I knew we were going to be doing this tonight. And, yeah. um, you know, I took a lot of time today to think about Vegas and look back over their season and, you know, just ask around, you know, ask a few questions, solicit some opinions, and then kind of think what I thought. You know, the number one thing is, and you talked about it on your radio show today, and, and I do think this is the number one thing that has to be mentioned more than anything else, is they got crushed by injuries. And the number one reason they're not in the playoffs this year is because of injuries. And that's it. And everything that went wrong for them was exacerbated by the injuries they suffered and what it did to their cap situation and everything else. So I think that's an important thing to mention. If they're 50% more healthy than they were, mm. I think they're a playoff team. But them's the breaks, and that's where we are. And there's a later question we'll get to, and that is you know, how they're perceived and does that really mean anything. But to me right now, there's two bigger questions. What does the organization think that missing the playoffs means under these circumstances, number one? And number two, they're going to have to make some personnel decisions. The cap demands it. And first and foremost is what's going to happen in goal. That's where I think we have to go here is what are the consequences, if any? What's the direction of the team and what's happening in goal? Okay, so let's um, do a quick review then because I'm with you. Like I, I think the story here for the Vegas Golden Knights is don't overreact because you got crushed by injuries. Mark Stone, 36 games. Max Pacioretty, 38 games. Jack Eichel, 33 games. Alec Martinez, 25 games. You knew with Eichel when you got him, that's where you were going. Absolutely. But you look at those other players. These aren't bottom players on your team. These are key guys. To me, mm -hmm. that is the story. I know there's the goalie question. We know there's the how will Foley react to all this because this is new territory for the Vegas Golden Knights. And, you know, after that first season, we're this close and we're going to win the Stanley Cup. Damn it. Um, what are the personnel decisions that the cap is going to demand? But just as I look back on the season, I'm with you. The story is injuries. And I know all teams deal with it. But this one really crushed the Vegas Golden Knights. And I, I, I guess then we'll start with the wild card. And there's perhaps only one person. Hold on one thing. Before we do that, I want to ask you one question. 
Okay. Because again, you talked about, we talked about this today on your radio show, and I've thought a lot about what you said, and I've asked some other people about it too. Like I had a few teams tell me today that that Vegas was always a very together team through good and bad. And this year was the first year they really saw them as a frustrated team, you know, doors slamming in games, players occasionally uh, showing frustration or snapping at each other occasionally during games. Like, I don't want to make a big deal of that because I, I don't want anyone to take that to me that I think that the Vegas Golden Knights all despise each other because I don't know if that's true. I think that when you're losing and your season's slipping away, I think that's normal. And I don't want people to overreact to that. I'm just saying that teams noticed it more this year. So I think the other question they have to determine in the short term is, was that just, as you said, the frustration of the injuries and the season slipping away? Or is there any chance the fabric of this team has been changed and they have to address that? And I want to say, I don't know. I'm not saying one or the other. I'm just saying that other teams noticed it more this year, more than ever. And so I think the Golden Knights have to kind of look at that and say, eh, circumstances or, you know what, we better kind of just chew on this a bit. I look at this and I say context is king. And the context we have for the Vegas Golden Knights is this doesn't happen to the Vegas Golden Knights. This is virgin territory. This is all new for the Vegas Golden Knights. So when they see them struggling down the stretch and we see frustration, we see doors slamming and barking on the bench and, you know, sticks getting broken. We're not used to it because even though other teams do it, like if, you see it with the Calgary Flames. Remember when they went through that stretch where they played Carolina, Florida, and, and Tampa, and all of a sudden... Toronto last year in the playoffs. Toronto last year in the... Like, you you see it, but other teams go through it. And we've seen other teams go through it before. We just haven't seen Vegas go through it. Right. It's interesting, too. This might sound a little bit weird, but I've, I've always felt this way. I think teams have to learn how to win, and I think teams have to learn how to lose, too. Learning how to lose is a really, really interesting thing to have to go through, and they've never had to go through it. Like you can learn how to lose and come out of it stronger, or you can abandon this idea of of losing and come out of it weaker. Like you can learn no lessons from it. It actually weakens you. I always think about Tampa, Elliot, uh, of the last couple of years. When they bowed out against the uh, the Columbus Blue Jackets in fourth straight after winning the President's Trophy, like they took that and they learned from it. You know, they didn't implode. Like they didn't take that loss. They didn't take that losing and and cave in on themselves. They grew from it and they became stronger because of it. Like you look at the Vegas Golden Knights and you say, this is all new to them. And now they can go one of two ways. Mm-hmm. This can get worse, but it also has a potential to get better. Now, to your point about the salary cap situation, it's going to be more difficult because there's going to be some difficult decisions that the salary cap necessitates. And that might make learning from losing harder. Yeah. Listen, this is obvious. I go back to minor and youth hockey. This is a great tool. This can be a great tool for the Vegas Golden Knights. And there is a chance here that they do come out of this stronger, provided, again, they don't overreact to this or don't react emotionally to this. Well, I think that's the thing. I I think that's a great speech you make. Like uh, most of your speeches are awful. This is, that's a really good one. (laughs) And and I agree with you. You can't, the only good thing about going out now is that you have time. You can't really rush and do a lot of things because you can't deal with everybody. You don't really know what the full landscape is out there. So you have time. 
And I think that's very important. You look at the roster. I think if you start with that roster, you can win. Oh, listen, ask anybody. Listen, I've, I've asked so many people. You can win with that roster. Ask so many people this over the last couple of days. If you run back this exact same roster healthy next season, what happens? They probably win the division. Or at least they're right in the conversation to win the division. If you run this thing back, if you don't overreact and run this thing back and everybody's healthy, you're right back to the top, aren't you? I think so. I do think you can be a great team next year. I do. I think the number one thing they have to deal with is Leonard because I don't know where this is going to go. You know, I've told you many times this week and I've repeated it in radio, podcast, wrote it. People are telling me, wait, like this is not over. There's still more to go here. Mm. And I think, you know, Vegas is going to play its last game. They're going to have their exit interviews. You know, what's everyone going to say? How does everybody feel? Mm. This is going to take some real skill and handling because there are the possibilities, Jeff, if this has isn't handled right, of aftershocks, just more and more and more. And also, too, like, is this something that the League and the Players Association are going to have to get involved in, depending on, you know, where all this goes? So if I was running the Golden Knights, That's the number one thing I'm working on right now Hmm. is how do I work this situation? And remember, it's not like Leonard's a UFA. He's got three more years under contract and the next two are six and six and a half to the highest two years of the deal. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, how can I work this? Or is there a way to deal with this so that it can be solved to everyone's satisfaction mentally and physically? and emotionally without a series of aftershocks that further damage the franchise. Like, I don't know what the answer is, but I I do think everybody's got to be looking at this and saying, if it's not dealt with in a proper way, it's going to get worse before it gets better. I'm so with you on this one, uh, that the most important person that the Vegas Golden Knights need to do work with this offseason is Robin Leonard. I know there's a question you wrote about Riley Smith. I know there are some individual questions for some individual players here. But to me, it is what can you do to like physically repair Robin Leonard? Because let's not forget, too, when Robin Leonard is healthy, he's, he's one of the best goaltenders in the NHL, period. Ask anybody who follows this closely. Ask, you know, the 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 good people at Ingle magazine. Ask anyone who's a, you know, a, a goalie freak. They'll tell you, man, Robin Leonard is amongst the elite in the NHL. I, I'm with you. Like to me, that is the one area that needs the most attention from Vegas is help that goalie. You help that goalie, you help your organization. You help this franchise. I, I'm with you. Personnel decisions mm-hmm. is the other category here we should probably go over. And you wrote about Riley Smith. Mm-hmm. We all know the cap situation that the Vegas Golden Knights are faced with and everybody, you know, made the Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, Kucherov, um, you know, LTIR jokes towards the end of the season. Okay. And then the reality of next season is going to hit the Vegas Golden Knights and they're going to have to make some really tough decisions. How do you see it shaking out? <sighs> You know, I, I I don't have a great answer for you. Well, Riley Smith is one. I would imagine Evgeny Dodonov would be another. You know, here's the thing. Smith, like I wrote, I heard that something was close. I got a tip right around the trade deadline that something was close with Smith. And that got disputed to me 
but it's very clear they were going down the road with him. And the other thing that was interesting about this was Smith apparently was doing it without an agent. So whenever a player does it without an agent, mm-hmm. I generally think it's because they think, you know, we can handle this and, and, and get it done. And so I think that's kind of where it was. And I wonder if everything that happened in the last eight weeks has convinced them even more they need to have the guy. If they determine that, and Leonard determines that he can't come back or they can't come back, you know, that's that's one situation. Dodonov, he played really well for them. Yeah, I understand why it might be a situation where he gets traded, but he was one of their best players after the deadline. Mm-hmm. Like, if anything, he impressed me even more than I, I thought about him before. Like, I don't really know the guy that well. I thought he handled himself incredibly well. Just as an aside, did you not think he was scoring on Dallas in the shootout? Oh, that that had that kind of ending written all over it, Elliot? Because I did. Absolutely, I did. I mean, to me, the questions there are, the biggest ones are, what do you think that you need to pay Haig, no. who does not have arb rights? And what do you think you need to pay Wah, who does? I mean, obviously, Vegas still has the hammer on Nick Haig. As much as I love him and I want to do my Anthony Stewart and say all of the money <laughs> because, <laughs> I, because I love the guy, the team holds the hammer there. Mm-hmm. Now, you want to do well and you want to do right by the player, and he's a big piece of the future of that blue line, but the team has the hammer. So Mark Moser, who's the radio voice of the Avalanche, had a tweet last night. He said, I've worked in the NHL for 25 years. I've never seen Universal dunking on an organization before. Not once. Whoa. And I think we do see it from time to time, but there's no question there's there's a lot of it here. The last time I saw this, like this mm-hmm. was 2011 with the Vancouver. Canucks. You know, it's so funny you say that. Well, not funny to our Vancouver listeners, but funny to me in the sense that that's exactly the answer I was going to give. And the next year, remember in 2012, the Kings beat them in the first round. You remember what they tweeted? You're welcome. You're welcome, Canada, or something like that. Yeah. It's so funny you say that because that was the exact same thing I was thinking of. And I don't like to kick people when they're down. I I know what that's like. But one of the things I wanted to do was just that I asked a bunch of people why. You know, just, you know, what is it about this situation that particularly has brought it out? And a lot of people have different answers. But one thing that definitely appears to be true to me is like a lot of us loved it when Vegas was successful fast. But a lot of teams didn't. And the way that they ran their expansion draft, like I have no problem with that because you're supposed to try for a competitive advantage, right? Mm -hmm. But for a lot of fans, I think it's really started to change this year. But I think for a lot of teams in the league, this goes right back to the beginning. Right back to the beginning. And it's that they were successful too soon. They use the power of the expansion draft, which made some teams look bad. Again, like I get that. That's what you're supposed to do. But for a lot of teams, this goes right back to the beginning. And and I will tell you, too, that the Gallant thing, the fact that he had a verbal deal and and then it got taken back and he got fired, 
Mm. Gerard Gallant is a really popular guy in hockey circles. And I think there's still a lot of hard feelings over that. Now, I think a lot of you listening to this who are fans, you'll look at this year more for that. And I think that's totally fair. I would never tell the fans what to think. When I ask people in the league why they feel as strongly as they do, it goes back to those two things. The expansion draft was an interesting one, and I'm glad you mentioned it too, because there was definitely a feeling amongst not all, but some general managers, and that was the way that Vegas was able to successfully navigate and full kudos to them and their yeah. entire staff. Like I, I want I want to underscore that great job. Like that was a masterpiece in choosing players. But I know some teams felt humiliated because it seemed as if they knew the other team's players better than they did. That they knew where to find value and they knew where teams undervalued players. And I think that got a lot of general managers' backs up. I can understand it. You just got humiliated by an expansion team because they plucked some players that you undervalued and look at them now, they're stars. So I understand that, rightly or wrongly. And wrongly, because listen, they followed the rules and you made these players available or you cut these deals to make these players available and protect certain other players. And that was your choice. Congratulations to the Vegas Golden Knights there. One other thing too, Elliot, before we move on from the Vegas Golden Knights conversation, I don't know about you, man, but I felt just awful for Logan Thompson. That guy poured everything out of himself Mm -hmm. to try to keep that team in it. Like maybe at the end of all of this, like in all of this like dark cloud around Vegas, they found a good goalie. Or they found that they have a really good goalie in Logan Thompson because he was exceptional, Elliot. Man, those three shootouts in a row. 14 of 17. It was so good. (laughs) He was awesome. I felt just awful for this guy. I think you learn a lot about a guy and how he competes and battles in difficult situations. And he competed and he battled. I I would just like to say the last thing I want to say about Vegas. I I do agree with you on Thompson. It's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. You know, the last thing I'd just like to say about Vegas is uh, I'd like to know what the players think. You know, how do they feel about all this? And I think their voices are very important, especially the last two weeks. We'll see. Exit interviews are coming up. You know, Elliot, one thing we should mention is um, this is going right. Big night. Friday, huge, right? Friday is going to be an enormous night, and it's always nice when things go right down to the wire. Now, we've all known the playoff teams in the East going back months, and it's only been a matter of seeding, but that is going to continue, Elliot, right into Friday. And there's also some machinations here in the West that we need to dedicate some attention to as well. Well, first of all, do you think that there is any chance that Toronto Maple Leafs send the novice single A Golding Park Rangers to play the Boston Bruins on Friday night? <laughs> well, they're keeping Matthews out. They're keeping Marner out of this one as well against the, the Boston Bruins. I'm not sure if Golding Park is going to show up, Elliot, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Tampa Bay could have kind of locked it down. They didn't do it. First of all, Picking who you're going to play against is a really bad idea in general. But if you were the Leafs, would you rather play Boston or Tampa? If you're the Leafs, Boston. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I've said it all season long. I'd rather play, if I'm the Maple Leafs, I'd rather play Boston than Tampa. Now, Tampa wins 
and they're playing the Islanders, they're playing Toronto. But Boston's a point behind. They play the Maple Leafs on Friday night, and Boston also holds the tiebreaker. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'm thinking if I'm Tampa, Jeff, is you're playing the Islanders in the last game. Islanders are a tough team. They play really hard. I don't know if I'd want to put my best team out there one game before the playoffs. And I'm not even talking about Islanders deliberately injuring guys. Just the way they play, you can get hurt. Mm -hmm. If you're Florida, does it matter if you play Pittsburgh or Washington? How's Tristan Jari? (laughs) You know, that's the question. If you're Carolina... Who would you rather have, Pittsburgh, Washington, or Tampa? I don't want Tampa. That's the last team I want to play. That's a scary team. And again, the, the Pittsburgh question is still, how's Tristan Jari? If you're the Rangers, do you want Pittsburgh or Washington? Rangers have owned Pittsburgh yeah. for a couple of years now. I'm tempted just to say outright whether Tristan Jari is fine or not. I'll take the Penguins. I want to avoid Tampa. That's the team I don't want to play. Mm -hmm. Somebody tweeted me today. I wish I could find the tweet. Have you noticed how Tampa has been killing teams ever since you said they were tired? I got the same tweet. (laughs) Isn't it interesting? The the moment Elliot started barking about how Tampa's tired, they've been starching teams (laughs) eight to one, nine to four. Way to go. The rest of the NHL, way to go, Elliot. You, uh, the, the, you, you've woken up the volcano here. Tremendous. And, and we've still got to wait in the West exactly who Colorado and Calgary are going to play. Is it going to be Dallas or is it going to be Nashville? Dallas, man, they look really – they looked like they were going to win that, Detroit, that Arizona game 8-0. And, you know, all credit to the Coyotes for coming back in that one. Sure. They showed a ton of pride. You know, I was looking at it, Dallas – since this playoff system went into effect in 2013-14 and over 82 games, minus 10, only Detroit Mm. once had a worse differential, goal differential of making it in. Twice Detroit made it in with negative goal differentials. One year they were minus 8, and one year they were minus 13. I think this is the second worst playoff differential under this playoff system, 82 games. It's a definition of going backwards into the playoffs. But nonetheless, just get in. Yeah. Okay, Elliot, the last team that we have to get to by way of discussing teams that have been eliminated are the Vancouver Canucks. Man, we have talked a lot about the Vancouver (laughs) Canucks this year. And, you know, there were times... You know, there's there's one manager, Elliot, that uh, that texts us every now and then <laughs> and sort of chides us about, you know, are we going to get our, our daily Vancouver Canucks update from your podcast again this week? And that, that, that's that's always received well. You know, I have to tell you, too, there was one time I was calling a PR guy to see if I could set an interview up with a player. And he goes, uh, can't wait to hear about Vancouver on the podcast for the 96th consecutive time. <laughs> We've talked so much about Vancouver. <laughs> and here we go again, Elliot. Uh, Vancouver officially eliminated. 
I don't know where to go here. We've 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 talked plenty. Um, we can talk about JT Miller and Ian McIntyre's fantastic piece. We can talk about Bo Horvat, yeah. uh, whom you wrote about in Thirty Two Thoughts at Sportsnet.ca this week. Where do you think is particularly important to begin? Because we talked about Boudreaux last time. Well, so. I I just think we should we should just briefly mention that that I I wouldn't be surprised if they take a run at that pretty quick mm-hmm. and just see if they can get to a situation where they can knock that down. One of the things about Vancouver. I think that was really good for them in the second half of the season is the attention was focused on the things you want it focused on, right? Like I said on your podcast, Vegas has to tune down the noise, right? Well, Vancouver had a really noisy first half of the season and they finished with a really quiet second half of the season because they win. And um, Boudreaux is obviously a huge part of that. Like the thing I think about Rutherford is I think he's really smart. I think he's seen everything. I think he understands the way the world works. He understands that negotiations go uh, here and there. And I think he understands it. And I think they take a run to try to get Boudreaux done reasonably quickly. What changed? Do you think? Was it just public outcry? I don't think it was simply a public outcry. I also think it was, there's just a recognition that you know, he connected with the group. They're going to try to bring a lot of this group back, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like you mentioned Miller's piece with McIntyre. You know, obviously it's going to come down to what kind of deal they can make, but it's clear that Miller is welcome to come back. Like, it's not like this guy's running out the door, right? Mm-hmm. I think Rutherford just knows that why tempt fate here? Now, I think the biggest question is term. I think if Boudreaux's talking four years, I don't think that's going to happen. But if it's next year plus two more, I think there's the possibility of getting this done. That I just think there's an understanding that this worked, mm-hmm. and and that's what it is. You know, as for the roster, I know there's been a lot of talk about Miller, and there's been a lot of talk about Besser, but I really do think there's a chance that Horvat is their number one priority. You know, getting him locked up, and then they'll kind of see where everything goes from there. How busy an offseason do you think it will be? Because the hue and cry that we heard when, you know, Rutherford uh, took over was bring me cap space. I need cap space. I need to maneuver here. I'm frozen. I can't do things. Has that changed? I don't think that's necessarily changed. I, I, I do think that, like, it depends on what all becomes available to them, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Rutherford, he's got his hands in a lot of different places. He's seen everything. Nothing surprises him. I'm sure he's surveying the landscape and and figuring it out. I don't think they're coming back with the same group, but the question is, who's he moving out? I wouldn't be surprised if we're not aware of what his biggest move is going to be yet, Mm. and it comes out of something else that happens in the playoffs or around the playoffs. We shall see. Yeah. Dustin Brown, you know what I wondered about at the time? When you and I discussed the embrace after the Anaheim-Los Angeles game with Ryan Getzlaff and Dustin Brown, the first thing when I saw that going through my mind was, I wonder if Dustin Brown is saying I'm next to Ryan Getzlaff. Like we talked about the nature of- That's a great question. How Anaheim-Los Angeles once upon a time was must-see television. Those games were so good, every single one of them. They're great. And I love the fact that these two guys came together at, at center ice, you know, after Getzlaff made his announcement, obviously, and it was the last game against the Los Angeles Kings. And I just wondered, because I'm thinking about all those guys from 2003, and a lot of them are winding down their careers. I just wondered if Dustin Brown said, you know what, 
I'm right there behind you. I'm not coming back for another year. It was great to play against you or something along those lines. Anyhow, Dustin Brown announcing today that at the end of the uh, this, really smart. this year's playoffs that he will retire, taking another chess piece off the board that is the 2003 NHL draft. Your thoughts on Dustin Brown, Elliot? You know, by the way, I'm, I'm beginning to think more and more that you're going to be right about Brent Burns. I think it's Burns. I think it's Burns or Suter. Yeah. I think those are the two guys. You know, Dustin Brown... The thing I won't forget about him is the guy who got the Stanley Cup. Twice he took the Stanley Cup. Like, I'm not going to be remembered that way, but I would be really happy to be remembered that way. (laughs) That's all you need. I mean, I remember, Jeff, uh, Dustin Brown was on the U.S. team at the 2003 World Juniors, lost to Canada in the semifinals in Halifax. That's the first World Juniors I ever covered. I remember just a lot of the people I dealt with in that tournament, and he was one of them. And... uh, a hell of a career, quiet guy, very charitable. Mm-hmm. I know that for a long time, the Kings would always say that if they needed somebody to do something, that he was always one of those guys who was available. That's another thing I think is a really nice thing to have said about you. But at the end of the day, when I think of Dustin Brown, I think of a guy who was handed the Stanley Cup twice, and that's a hell of a legacy. Yeah, for the uh, expansion, Los Angeles Kings. And I say that going back to 1967. Um, I think of a guy that was miserable to play against. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All I can think about is like, how awful must it have been to have to play against that guy in a seven-game series? And he was relentless. Like, he would do things, you know, sometimes cross the line and wouldn't care. He'd come back and do it again. Like, he was like, he was like robotic about it. Like, yeah, I did that and I don't care. I'm going to come back and I'm going to do it again. And you can do nothing about it. And he wasn't going to get sucked into anything stupid. He wasn't going to get dragged into anything that was going to hurt his team. He just like went about his business being a really good hockey player that was miserable to play against. I have to say, sometimes that did drive me crazy. I loved it. I loved it. There was like an almost robotic nature about Dustin Brown. I'm going to do something that you don't like over and over and over again in a seven game series. And I'm going to make your life hell. That's what Dustin Brown did over and over again. I loved it. I can only imagine how awful that was to play against. I don't think everybody else loved it as much as you did. <laughs> I like because I just watched it from my couch, Ellie. That's so right. Of course, of course, I love that. Uh, congratulations uh, to Dustin Brown on a uh, wonderful career. We wish him and the Los Angeles Kings uh, all of the best in the playoffs. All right. Two quick things I want to get to before we touch on a couple of uh, prospects, Jeff. Hmm. First of all, uh, UC Soros. There was a reporter today. His name is Alex Doherty. And he works for a company called A to Z Sports. And he reported that Saros has a high ankle sprain and could be four to six weeks. Now, I'm not sure about the timeline. I don't like timelines. Like, you know, I remember uh, one playoff series. I can't remember when it was, but I reported that Keith Primo was going to miss game one of a playoff series with a concussion. And he played. Mm. And I, I remember just like, I'm, I'm never doing this again. So I don't know about the timeline, but I don't think Alex is necessarily too far off on his report. I do think it's possible that's the injury. 
I don't know the timeline, but like I've said, I, I just don't think it's good. That was the one thing that I hated about that Nashville Calgary game. The yeah, other day. It that really game sucks. was spectacular. The only thing that I didn't like, because I think a lot of us are drooling at the idea of Nashville and Calgary playing a seven game series, especially if it looks anything like that game was. I just hated seeing Saros go off the ice. I want to see Markstrom versus Saros. Well, I think you you want to see if teams are going to lose. They're going to lose with their full rosters, right? Yeah. That's not what you want to see, and that's not what you have any desire to see. And the last thing I want to mention is um, I did have a chance to speak today to David Morehouse. Okay. The uh, CEO of the Pittsburgh Penguins who uh, who resigned on Wednesday after 16 years. And, uh, you know, obviously it was, a, it was a great era for the Penguins. Boy, Thanks oh boy. to Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, uh, Marc-Andre Fleury, Chris, Chris Letang, Letang, and a whole Keep host going. of other players. <laughs> they won three Stanley Cups. And, you know, the timing was strange. But as he said to me, you know, is there ever a good time? So he's had some, you know, health issues that he's had to deal with. And he spent a bit of time in hospital a year ago. And he, he just said that, it was at that time, you know, he decided that eventually it was going to get to the point where maybe it was time to step back a little bit. Hmm. And, you know, he's got a son who plays in the BCHL and he's going back for another season in the BCHL. And then he's going to go to Dartmouth and he's got a, a couple of daughters and, you know, he wants to spend time with them. I think it's pretty clear to me that he decided about a year ago from our conversation that it was coming to an end. It was just a matter of of when. And um, he didn't tell me this, but somebody else did. They're not surprised it came now because before the sale, Morehouse basically, you know, Ron Burkle's a billionaire and he's doing whatever he does. And Mario Lemieux is the other owner, and he's not involved in the day-to-day stuff. Mm -hmm. So in a lot of ways, you know, Morehouse was running the franchise. And now there's new ownership. And look, as this person stressed to me, he said, it's not like it's bad or anything, but it is going to be different. So if you're planning to go, now is the time. I spoke to this person after I spoke to Morehouse, so I didn't talk to him about that, but it makes a lot of sense to me. And I think that Morehouse just is at a point where after 16 years, what he went through last year, he's just ready to spend some time with his kids and do some other things. And I don't think anybody can really knock that at all. You know, the other thing he told me, Jeff, that he was really proud of is this year, Logan Cooley uh, will become the first local Pittsburgh kid Mm -hmm. to be taken in the top five of the NHL draft. And he stressed when I spoke to him that that's not solely about him. And he doesn't want anyone thinking he's taking (laughs) credit for that. Like, you know, the Penguins were a team. Remember they were in bankruptcy and they were in big trouble. And Mary Lemieux coming back and Sidney Crosby and Malkin and the Penguins realized they really had to make themselves part even more of the city's culture. And he says, it's not solely me. He said he's proud he play, of the role he played as part of it. But he says, leaving at a time when Cooley's about to be the city's first top five pick, mm-hmm. he said it, it's a real special feeling for him. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad he mentioned that too, because, you know, that Penn's Elite program is, like, as far as youth hockey goes, Elliot, it's fantastic. 
Remember we talked during the um, uh, our pandemic shows, we talked to Tyler Kennedy. He does some great work with a lot of these kids too. But honestly, like that Penn's Elite program is fantastic. And they are cranking out high-end players. And Logan Cooley's not the last. There's going to be more. I'm, I'm glad that Morehouse takes a lot of pride in that because they, they got a really good thing going there in Pittsburgh. Yeah, I think we have to stress not credit but pride right because he said if you say i'm taking credit for this <laughs> it was pretty funny listen um what can be better than enjoying your family what can be better than going to watch your kid play hockey man i do it i'm a dad i watch it i love it good on david morehouse uh take a bow david morehouse if you're listening right now take a bow for a very successful 16 seasons uh with the pittsburgh penguins what a ride that was and just before we send it to Craig Conroy, I wanted to touch on Ivan Moroshnashenko. Ivan Moroshnashenko. So last time we spoke about him, uh, we were talking about how he had been diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. Yes. Yeah, so that was in March. And he, I mean, you know him better than I do. He's a high pick Good potentially player. in the draft. Yes. Oh, yeah. So, you know, right now the under 18s are in Germany and he's in Germany getting treatment. Uh, I believe he's heading into his fourth and final round of uh, chemotherapy. And I believe, and nobody would say who, but I think there's some NHL teams that met with him there, that they took the time to go meet with him and talk to him and see how he's doing. And um, the word I got back was, he, you know, he, he looks pretty good, all things considered. Um, he's a little thinner than he was before, but nobody was really thrown by that. You know, he's not doing heavy workouts. His father, I didn't know this. His father's name is Nikolai. He's a track coach. Oh. So they go for long walks in, in mountains and trails and things like that to keep his strength up. Great. But, um, you know, after this treatment, I think he's going to start looking at getting his, when can he get his strength up? When can he go back on the ice? You know, I don't know where he's going to get drafted or anything like that, Jeff. But, you know, the teams are being very careful of who actually met with him right but i thought it was very interesting that they did go to meet with him and uh obviously i wish ivan the best i think we all do absolutely good luck to that uh that super young man uh and as a hockey player yeah you're right frege this guy is this guy is a heck of a hockey player we from everyone here we wish him the best want to mention michael misa as well yes uh so today it was uh announced michael misa no surprise goes first overall in the as they refer to it, OHL priority selection, which is a fancy way of saying the OHL draft, um, Saginaw spirit. So congratulations to that young man, um, that young man's family. His brother plays with the Mississauga Steelheads uh, of the OHL. So now the the two brothers are playing in the Ontario League. Uh, congrats to uh, Saginaw general manager Dave Drinkle. This is a great one for him. And Chris Lazary, who's the head coach of the Saginaw Spirit. Uh, you now have a Ferrari to drive, Chris. Uh, this kid is a, mm -hmm. is a real special one where everything, like as we mentioned on, uh, on Hockey Night a few weeks ago, everything kind of turned for him at the OHL Cup by way of, of exceptional status. I should have mentioned that off the top for those that uh, aren't familiar with the story. He was granted recently exceptional status to enter the OHL a season early joining the likes of John Tavares and Aaron Ekblad and most recently Shane Wright and some guy by the name of Connor McDavid uh, who went in early to join the Erie Otters. So congratulations uh, to that young man. And isn't one of Anthony's uh, players supposed to go second? Yes, Malcolm Spence, who I would imagine would go number two 
to the Erie Otters. Um, number 17 from the uh, the Mississauga Senators, same team that Michael Misa uh, played with. There's another outstanding player right there who, you know, if, if Michael Misa wasn't granted exceptional status, Elliot, Spence probably would have gone first overall. Congratulations, Anthony. Always happy to see one of his guys do well. Elliot, and before we get to Craig Conroy here, man, we're getting heavy on time. I know. I apologize for the long podcast. Luckily, there's no games this weekend, <laughs> so all of you can listen to this. Someone who I've always admired as a broadcaster and cherished as a friend and someone that I used to work with um, when AM640 had the uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs radio rights and actually the Mississauga Ice Dogs uh, during the lockout of 0405 when we were doing Ice Dogs games, Dennis Bayak handled them. Dennis Bayak uh, announcing that at the end of this season, he will uh, he will step away from the Winnipeg Jets microphone. Uh, I believe you mentioned on Twitter, way to go calling your own shot, Dennis Bayak. I love this guy. I think he's one of the best hockey play-by-play voices in oh, the game, yeah. period. Just and solid. Solid. You know what I've always said about Bayak? We're blessed with great play-by-play people in this industry and great color voices as well. Dennis is one of those rare people that could handle a broadcast by himself, do both the play-by-play and the color, and it would be seamless. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody prepare for a broadcast like Dennis Bayak or have a wider frame of reference to pull information from than Dennis Bayak. Has a a background in in junior hockey, running teams, uh, broadcasters, certainly radio. We think of the, the Oilers from so many years ago and Maple Leafs radio and Winnipeg Jets television. I'll let you speak here in a second. I just want to wish, you know, publicly wish Dennis Bayak all the success uh, as he moves away and, and a big congratulations for a, for a tremendous career calling NHL games. Well, I spoke to him earlier today and um, people deserve to call their own shot. Like when you have worked as long as he has and you have just been as professional as he has and you have been as low maintenance as he has, does the game, he does it well, he does it exceptionally well, doesn't cause anyone any problems. He's happy to do his work without getting a lot of attention. You deserve the right to go out when you're ready and on your terms. And, you know, that's what I asked him today. It was, you know, was was it your call? And he said 100%. So I'm just happy for that. So Elliot, to conclude this already lengthy podcast, we want to make it longer, but trust me, it is going to be worth your while to stick with it. Craig Conroy is the assistant general manager of the Calgary Flames, uh, a former NHLer, a very colorful personality, a wonderful speaker, a very thoughtful guy, and someone that I've always enjoyed speaking to, whether it's on a podcast or on radio, television, whatever. Uh, when I say Craig Conroy's name to you, Fridge, what pops into your brain? Never said no to an interview, and I always appreciate it. That was what I thought before this interview. Mm-hmm. Now what I think about after this interview is he thinks my Selkie pick is terrible. I like him already, said everybody (laughs) listening to this podcast. So here he is, Craig Conroy, Assistant General Manager of the Calgary Flames on 32 Thoughts Pod. Enjoy. Before we get back to our regular programming, we need to talk about our partner, Montana's Barbecue and Bar. Taco Boat. 
Really? That's right. With $5 tacos available every Tuesday, satisfy any taco craving when you try their seasoned grilled chicken, Mexi spiced beef, Kapow shrimp, or mixed veggie options. Mix and match to try them all or add one to the side of your favorite Montana's item. $5 tacos at Montana's Barbecue and Bar every Tuesday. Some conditions apply. Visit montanas.ca for details. First of all, Craig, thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast today. And one thing that I, we were just talking a little bit off air about Matthew Kachuk, and you told a really funny story, and I would hate to leave that one, as they say, in the green room. Can you, Craig, start this interview off by telling us a story of, you know, we'll go back to the 2016 NHL draft. It's in Buffalo. Austin Matthews goes first overall. Matthew Kachuk falls to the flames at six. What happens as Matthew Kachuk walks up onto the stage to greet you and Brian Burke, et cetera? So I'm standing right next to Berkey and Berkey just said, you know, as he's coming up, we don't wear hats here. And he says, well, that's good because I'm having a great hair day. (laughs) And he didn't miss a beat. So you just, you know, that shows you how quick-witted Matthew is and ready to go. And he didn't care if it was Brian Burke or whoever. He just... That came to his mind and he said it. You know, we're we're recording this interview on, on Wednesday, April 27th, just after 2 o'clock Eastern. And this is after a great game against the Nashville Predators. And Matthew Kachuk is front and center and he's going at Duchesne. And, you know, such a Matthew Kachuk move at the end of the game, you know, offers to autograph a stick for Matthew Olivier. Like, it's just like everything about that game, you know, during the game, after the game, just screamed Matthew Kachuk. I'm like, this is a signature game for Matthew Kachuk. How do you see him in the organization? First of all, he's having a heck of a season. How do you see him in the organization right now from your purchase, assistant GM? It's the whole line. It's amazing what it's around the whole league, though. I mean, but just him in particular, it's what you expect from Matthew. He's got all the intangibles. We always say, you know, he brings intangibles. Well, you saw it last night, you know, finishing the check, scoring the big goal, you know, just being in every scrum in the penalty box. I mean, he's chirping. He's got the other team agitated, and that's when he's at his best. And last night, that was as good a game as I've seen him play, and I really think he wanted to set the tone and say, hey, if we play you in the playoffs, mm-hmm. this is what's coming. You know, I I have to tell you, watching this whole Calgary team this year, Craig, I'd like to kind of go through last summer because you guys missed the playoffs last year and it's a really brutal year for a lot of different reasons, just the way life was. And I remember at the end of last year, the whole group was sitting there kind of saying, are we stale? Are we stale? Is this the right group? And now you're sitting here, you've had a phenomenal season. You've really only had one bad week all year. I'd like to hear about some of the decision-making that you guys went through in the off-season and how you decided to come back with a lot of the same group because I think a lot of teams would have had the intuition to kind of blow it up and go different. Well, I think looking back into the 2019 season, you know, we had an unbelievable season. We fell short in the playoffs. But as a group, what we could do as far as trades, make different things, with Daryl coming in and – you know, if we said we could add a few pieces that Daryl wanted, that's first and foremost. What does the coach want? How can we do it? And we did believe, you know, I believe Matthew Kachuk, he needs those fans. He needs that. To be in an arena with no fans, with no emotion, that's not Matthew Kachuk. And even going into that year, I thought we were the second or third best team in the Canadian division. So to underperform the way we did, it was disappointing, but you still believed in 
hey, you know what? We've made some good moves. We brought in Markstrom. We brought in Tanev. They were excellent. I felt like Markstrom, after he had his injury, you know, even now getting to know him even more this year and seeing him all the time, I don't know if he was quite right the rest of the year. He just seemed a little bit off to me. And to have him back healthy, ready to go the way he was at the beginning of the year before the injury, I thought uh, it was a huge difference. And that's always going to give you a chance. And then, you know, Daryl wanted to probably get bigger. Brad was saying, okay, who can we find? And I think when you look at a guy like Zadorov, what he did to us uh, in the playoffs uh, in 19, you know, kind of raising the roof, going after Johnny, going after our top players, you know, you're like, hmm, you'd like to have that guy. And then, you know, another big guy to bring in Gabranson. And, you know, we got to see him a lot in Ottawa last year, obviously live, which always helps. So, you know, those were a couple things. But in- internally, we thought let's – we brought in Daryl for a reason. We brought in a Daryl because we believed in the team, and that's why we brought Daryl in. If we thought we were going to have to make huge changes, probably would have went with a different coach, you know. And for whatever reason, the 30 games – didn't work as well. I mean, I honestly thought we were going to get in with Daryl last year, and unfortunately we didn't. And in your mind, you thought what he's doing this year is how it was going to work. Obviously, he said it was going to take more time. You know, I, I never want to take a lot of time. I'm like, <laughs> what? We brought him in. I want results now, Daryl. <laughs> so those are the hard things when you're looking back. I don't think we ever really discussed, hey, we're going to make changes. Guys had off years. Monaghan was hurt. Unfortunately, Monaghan's hurt again this year. So it's disappointing. But the belief we had in our guys was always there. And we felt like if we had a few pieces, you know, did I think it was going to be this good? Probably not. But I definitely thought we were a playoff team. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about Good Branson and Zadorov and, and Lucic too, who was already there. You know, one of the things that the Flames have taught, I think, a lot of people this year is that if you're going to bring in people you have to bring them into a situation where you're going to put them into a place where they can be successful. And I think a lot about your own career, Craig. You know, you had that great run with Calgary. You went to the Stanley Cup final, and then you signed with Los Angeles. And a year and a half later, you were back in Calgary, and you you basically just said that some things work for certain people. And I'm looking at Lucic and Gabranson and Zadorov. I don't know if those three guys would be as successful anywhere else than they are in Calgary right now. So what is that about finding a place and how you identified that this was going to be a place that was going to work for those three people? Well, I think first and foremost, you need to give them a role, put them in a situation to succeed and play a lot. You know, And that's the thing. I mean, I know Luch was scoring goals early on, but even though he hasn't scored a goal in a long time, he is such a huge if you I mean if you didn't get to see the Nashville game last night, oh he was front and center of everything. And that's what you need. But like when we we talked downstairs, he just said, Craig, you know, it's not about points for me anymore. It's about winning. It's about embracing the role that I have. Everybody wants to play a little bit more. But I think with him especially, he takes a leadership role in the room. He's won a Stanley Cup. He just wants to win another Stanley Cup. And he's gonna do whatever it takes if he plays seven minutes or 15 minutes, he's going to do everything he can in those shifts. And and you should see the work ethic and practice. That's what I love. You know, he comes to practice every day like a pro. The same thing with Gabranson and Zadorov. You wanted a big, heavy pair that could play against top players and, and be physical. That's what Daryl was wanted in his third pair. And that's what he got. But he also made them feel they're big, huge parts of this team. I mean, this, you know, it's, 
you know, if you bring in a player and he's a skilled player and you put him on the fourth line, it really doesn't do him any justice. You got to put guys in the right spot to succeed. And I think that's where Daryl, he pushes all those buttons and, and that's what makes him a, a special coach. I mean, playing for him and seeing what he's doing this year with the guys he had. And a, you know, a, a, another guy that's a little unsung for us, he definitely is unsung, is Trevor Lewis. Yeah, He's played everywhere in the lineup. He's done everything. And he just brings that calming winning attitude to the locker room that, you know, I think we needed to go along with our other guys that maybe, you know, haven't done it, but to bring in a Toffoli, guys like that. It's just, uh, it's real fun to be around the team right now and and excited to see where this is going to go. What do you think of Lucic's walk-ins? Like when he's walking into the game. Oh. <laughs> like now he now he's just doing it for the camera. Like it's obvious. And you know what? That's that's him to a T, and that's what I love about him. He brings a presence. He brings, you know. Yes. You want characters in the sport. I mean, I see Austin Matthews walking in, Marner with those suits. You know, I think it's good for the game. I love the Zegras goals. I love you don't want to see everybody be just say the same thing, wear the same clothes. I'm actually looking forward to seeing what Luch walks in every time. And, uh, you know, now the pressure's on because he's got to kind of try to outdo himself each and every game. <laughs> Those walk-ins have become legendary already. Though, like, there's no mistake. That's something we look forward to specifically. Like, okay, Flames game's on the board. Let's see what Luch is wearing. We know what the walk is going to look like. Because he looks like he's like slow walking to the world's biggest fight and he's calm. <laughs> he's got ice water running through his veins. Let me ask you about a couple of Swedish centermen. When you played, you were a really good two-way center. For those that may not have, have watched you play, like you're a really good two-way center. And you were the finalist for a Selkie Trophy a couple of times as well. And you've got two players on the Calgary Flames right now uh, that will get Selkie consideration. Uh, one is Elias Lindholm and the other is Michael Backlund. What do you see when you see these two players and you know what their contributions are to the Calgary Flames? You know, I think being a center myself and knowing what it's like to do all that work with the defenseman in the defensive zone, all the little plays they make, both guys are very deserving. It's hard because you don't want to split up the vote and you're always nervous that you're going to do that. But Lindholm is having one of the greatest years I've ever seen. When Backlund was up for the Selkie last time, Bergeron was, you know what, I'll admit it. I watched Bergeron said, wow, that it was just an amazing, amazing year. And I didn't even think there was a chance for anybody else. But this year, I feel the same way about Lindholm. I really do. It's the play away from the puck, the way he supports, the way he does all the dirty work to let Johnny and Matthew do what they do special, and that's to go on offense, to win faceoffs, to block shots, outlets for his deep, you know, easy plays, the way he defends. It Both those guys have done such an amazing job, and the reason we're having all the success is when your centers play that well, and both zones – you're going to win a lot of games. And obviously, you know, this year has been special for that one line, especially, but I think Lindholm's the guy that for me, that if he doesn't win the Selkie this year, it's, it's a real travesty. Oh, I have to tell you. So I was on with Kelly and on the panel on last uh, Saturday's game when you guys were playing Vancouver 
And I said, I think Bergeron's going to win it this year. I think he's going to win it. And oh my, did I hear from the Flames fans? They murdered me in my DMs. It was it was crazy, 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 Craig. Boy, I forgot what audience I was I was on with. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say in the past, you're 100 percent right, Elliot. Like I, I would have voted for him that year with Backlund too, and I love Backlund. Thought he had an amazing year. This year, I I feel the exact way with Lindholm. The problem is we have those 8 o'clock games out here. We don't, you know, I think we get lost in the shuffle a little bit when it comes to major awards, whether it's, you know, the Vesna, Hart, Selkie. I think sometimes having those late 8 o'clock starts, a lot of people are like, oh, I had to go to bed after the first period, <laughs> you know. So hopefully that doesn't uh, affect it but i i do believe i think you're totally wrong ellie at this time uh usually <laughs> usually i agree with you but not this time uh, okay this interview's over and it's never going to see the light of day <laughs> uh, before we talk about your career a bit i i just want you know you mentioned a couple years ago you guys were a, a very high seed and it, it lasted five games yeah and i would bet that you think it's going to be a lot different this time just what do you see in this group now that maybe wasn't the case then? I just think the way it's built, you saw the game last night and it's physical, hard. There's going to be, you know, with a roller coaster of emotions. I think we just feel more comfortable in those games now. We feel like if we have to play a big, heavy, hard game, we're built for that. And I think, you know, going into those playoffs, I really was kind of hoping Arizona was going to get in that year. I thought that was a good matchup for us. I was scared of the big line. You just didn't know. I was just in watching Makar play Harvard a few weeks before and said, uh-oh, this guy looks good. <laughs> you know, obviously, uh, you know, he came right in and did what he's done, and he's an amazing player. But it just didn't feel quite right. And this year, you just feel like that confidence. And the 11 years I've been on this side, there's just a – feeling around that room that they all believe in themselves. It doesn't matter what kind of game. And I think with Markstrom and Nett, there's that belief that uh, we can make a long run. You know, obviously it's going to be hard. Every team you play is, it's going to be a battle, but you know, I think that's part of it, having that belief in yourself. Was there a moment, Craig, this season? Because as you mentioned, coming off what happened last season, you know, there's got to be some some apprehension about what this season is going to bring with it. You don't want to make too many bold predictions. But like, I would imagine that there must have been a certain point in the season where you said to yourself, okay, you know what? We really are this good. Like, we really can contend. Like, we belong at the top of this division. Was there like one moment, one game, one week, one something where you said to yourself, you know what? This is legit, and it's going to be legit all season long. I think the way we started on the road this year, even in training camp, it just had a different feel. Guys were pissed off. Guys were like, okay, that was uh, not what we want to do. It was embarrassing last year. I mean, to put it any other way, that's what they felt coming in. I think they all came in in great shape. You know, they were ready to go, and it was business from day one, and that starts with the coaching staff. I mean, Daryl said, as management, we would every now and then you'd like to see some of your young guys get to play uh, in those preseason games. He was not having that. He was all about we're getting ready for game one. We're getting ready for the season. It was disappointing last year, and we're just we're all business. So I think right from day one of training camp, the way we played in the road, playing against top teams, and to see how we played against them, and we're right in games either win or lose. But there was a 
you know, a feeling that, hey, we can beat anybody in any given night. And the team believes that. And then to have kind of the way our top line has been scoring. I mean, it's amazing how scoring, and I worry a little bit about this moving forward for the league because coaches ruin everything. Yeah, This is hmm. so much fun. This is so much fun to watch what's going on. I was watching a game the other night, and they said 14 guys – and I forget which team it was, had career highs. 14 guys. I'm thinking, how many guys do we have on our team? How many to see what Austin Matthews did last night? This is fun. And I think just to see how good that top line was, we we knew something special was going to happen here. Did I know it was going to continue all year? No. And then just the confidence build and that third pairing has been excellent. You know, to have a guy like Shillington come in to play with Tanev and to see that chemistry and then you know, for me, two of the guys that maybe get underrated here for us in Calgary are Hannafin and uh, Anderson. Mm-hmm. They're as good as anybody. And, you know, they don't get a lot of the maybe the respect or credit that they deserve, but they've been amazing. So it's just as a group how it's come together and uh, it's, it's fun to watch. And I, I can't wait to get the playoffs started. I want to ask you, you're drafted 1996th round by the Montreal Canadiens. That year, like you haven't even started university yet. You don't go to Clarkson until that fall. So were you expecting to be drafted that year? Did you know that people had you on the radar? Uh, No, not really. I mean, I went to Northwood. So I'm from a small town in upstate New York, Potsdam. And talking to college coaches, they said I really needed to – I was good against – they thought weak competition. So they said, you need to do something. There wasn't USHL. I didn't really know junior hockey that well, you know, so I went to prep school at Northwood and Chris Terrian was there. So Chris Terrian was definitely going to get drafted. And I think there was a ton of scouts uh, in watching him. And I had a good year at Northwood. So, you know, you're kind of hoping you get drafted, but you never expect it. And then for it to be Montreal, I mean, that was my team growing up. So that was pretty special to get that phone call. Was this one of those stories where you thought it was a joke? I did. I did. <laughs> you know, if it was any other team, I might not. You know, then I got the second call back and it was the French X. I was like, whoa, wait, maybe maybe this is true. <laughs> so, you know, obviously I didn't go to the draft. I just got a phone call. So it was, it was nice. Mike Richter went there? Yeah. Chris Nyland. Chris Nyland went there too. Who, yeah, who else went to Northwood? Yeah, Tarion. Uh, I'm trying to think who else now. Now you got me stumped. Uh, but I think I think Jay Miller and Chris Nyland. I heard oh, wow. might have been a- players. Holy smokes, Jay Miller and Chris Nyland. <laughs> now I know why you like Lucci so much. <laughs> wow, I love tough guys. <laughs> oh, geez, those yeah, were. I think they might have fought in the cafeteria too. Is what I heard. I don't know if that's just. Folklore. It's amazing how some people have to kind of change when they get to the NHL, but you know how tough he was and Chris Nyland and yeah, you know, uh, Granada was there. Oh yeah. Tony. So there was, there's been some, some players, but I think that year Chris Terrian was the big name coming out of Northwood. You go to Clarkson for four years and you had a big last year. You had, you had 65 points in 34 games. When you left school and you headed towards the NHL and the AHL, you know, what did you reasonably expect, Craig? What, you know, what did you think was your future? You know, I thought I'm going to do my best. I'm going to see what it's like. I mean, obviously going to the NHL, I didn't know. You know, I figured I was going to be playing in the minors. And, and unfortunately, 
I hit Patrick Waugh in the head on my very first shot. We got in a little bit of a fight, and I got sent down right after that. So <laughs> yeah. it didn't go well to start, to be honest, guys. Like, I, I actually wanted to just leave Montreal as quick as I could. So, <laughs> Oh, my God. You hit Patrick Waugh in the head with your first shot? I was so excited. Like, they had just – they had won a cup, and, you know, he's – obviously a god in Montreal and my first shot I was just waiting in the back of the line and I took a shot it was a, a scrimmage first time I've ever been on the ice and I think the emotion and the adrenaline that I had going and I let a rocket go and right off the head and <laughs> oh, no. he stopped the whole thing threw a stick over the glass and charged out and punched me right in the forehead so it didn't go that well to start uh, <laughs> start my pro career to say the least <laughs> Wow, that's a rem- that's a remarkable. Like, hang on, I'm 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 I am curious. Like at that moment, so when you take that shot and hit Patrick Wall, what I'm imagining in my head here, Craig, is everybody on the ice stops. Yes, like oh oh, what something big just happened here. Is that accurate? That's what it feels like. What happened to me? Is that what happened? Yeah, both teams stopped, and then Patrick slowly started coming out and I was apologizing. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hit you. I'm sorry. You know, you're, apo-. and then when he punched me, my, my reaction was just to grab a hold of him just because I didn't want to get punched again. And both teams jumped on me and it was like, I was a rag doll in the middle of two teams. My team was going after me and, and the other team was going after me. I mean, I just couldn't get to the, I just was like, Oh boy. And then in the old forum, you know how they don't have the glass right behind? So all the reporters were like right there and asking me questions when I'm on the bench. I just was like, I didn't mean to hit them. Like, <laughs> and, and I was everywhere in the, in, in the papers, the French, the French media killed me that next day. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Thank no. God I couldn't read it. Some guys just told me what it said. <laughs> now, the where I really remember you from, Craig, is, I interviewed you on the ice when you guys knocked out San Jose to win uh, the Western Conference Final in 2004. And I'll never forget, there was one thing you said, that that crowd was going bananas, and you said, I didn't want to come here. And this turned out better for me than I ever could imagine. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like that. So you've been in Calgary, and basically you've never left. Aside for (laughs) hockey reasons, you've basically (laughs) never left. Like, take us through that time when you got dealt there for Corey Stillman and what you were thinking and feeling. You know, I think it's hard because we had such good teams in St. Louis, won the President's Trophy, lost in the first round. It's weird because Larry Plo actually, we played, I think, Colorado at home. We were going into Philly the next day, and Larry wanted to use something with myself and the daughter on the uh, Jumbotron. And I kind of looked at him, and he goes, I know you're hearing your name being out there. We're not trading so I, I felt pretty good going to Philly that day. And Nick Kiprios actually called me and said, you know, what do you think of the trades? And we had, we had got Keith Kachuk and Doug Waite. And I'm thinking, wow, we're really, we're going all in. And he said, so I mentioned those trades. And he said, no, I'm talking about your trade. I'm like, what? Oh, I didn't get traded. <laughs> so he said, and it was like 310. So I, I didn't really understand. I didn't know at the time there was a queue and how it worked and, so I literally was sitting there and Jamal Mayers was my roommate. And he's like, what did he say? I said, I don't know. He said, I got traded. <laughs> so we're quickly looking online. He's online looking. And, and I got a call from uh, from Larry to come up and see him and Joel in the, in their suite. And when I got up there, yeah, I got the bad news. And 
you know, my wife loved it. So, you know, you call, you call home and she's crying. The girls, the team was so close there in St. Louis that mm. it was hard. I mean, I remember going down and sitting with Pronger and, uh, and Al and Al, Al was good because Al was there. He's like, Craig, you're going to like it there. You know, I said, I don't want to go there. <laughs> you know, I want to just stay with you guys. I, I don't want to, I want to try to make another run. And then, uh, you know, I quickly had to leave, went, got my equipment and, and went in. We were playing in Columbus and then Detroit. And when we got to Detroit, uh, my agent, Louis Gross, came in and, you know, we had dinner after the game because I was going back to St. Louis to pick up my stuff. And, and you know, like anything, what we do is, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, he goes, OK, so maybe we don't want to be here. I said, yeah, maybe we don't want to be here. Like probably a bad attitude on my part. But when you look at the standings, they hadn't made the playoffs in a long time. And you just thought, ah, I just wanted a chance to win a Stanley Cup. So fast forward, I got out here. Uh, Craig Button was amazing. You know, he really, uh, you know, kind of explained what he thought I was going to do, what my role. And then Greg Gilbert, who I had in the minors for five games when I was in Worcester, he was now the coach because they made a coaching change with Don Hayes. So I thought, huh, this is you know, he's like, Craig, I know you have way more offense in your, you know, than you showed in St. Louis. You know, you did your job in St. Louis, but here you're going to get to play in the power play and stuff. And I, that kind of intrigued me. <laughs> you know, as a player, you're always like, oh, I want to be on the power play. So I got to play with Val Bure. I played a ton. I was like, oh, this is, and I remember talking to Lewis right after and said, you know what? I think I want to sign here longer because I had one more year than I was unrestricted or two years and then I was unrestricted. So I said, I wouldn't mind, you know, signing a little longer. So we end up signing a three-year deal and Lewis still says, well, now you've been there forever, <laughs> you know? So it's, uh, that, that's kind of how it worked. But yeah, I did not want to come. And then I just didn't think we'd have a chance to win. And that's what shows you, you never know who's going to win, who isn't going to win. In St. Louis, I thought we were going to win and we didn't. And, you know, in Calgary, we were able to, almost win you know disappointing we couldn't finish it off what do you remember most about that playoff run ah, there were so many things the jerome had the, the great shift in, in yeah. tampa you know monador scoring the overtime it's there's yeah. there's all like little points where the fights that jerome had uh you know i think for me though because i was in the playoffs quite a bit and these guys were when we got to play detroit i was thinking oh boy because being in St. Louis, we always got to Detroit and it didn't go well. And you're looking at a Hall of Fame power play. I mean, you're not even looking at like good players. You're looking at some of the best of all time. The guys were talking about winning and I thought, oh boy, I've never, never beaten the Detroit Red Wings in the playoff series. So I wasn't overly confident to be honest, but I didn't say anything. I just thought, okay, you know what? We have a gritty team. It's going to be hard. And when we won game one, I thought, well, oh, Maybe we have a chance here. And then game two, they really, really took it to us. And that power pillar came alive. And, you know, Daryl was great. Daryl came in and said, who wants autographs? Because obviously we're just here as fans and we want autographs. And out of nowhere, <laughs> Rhett Warner said, well, if you're getting autographs, I'll take a Nick Lidstrom. <laughs> Daryl wasn't very happy, but it broke the ice and, and, and it got us back on track. <laughs> Doing all those years of radio with Rhett Warner, I'm not surprised in the least bit. Like, you, did you guys think that Warner was about to get like just incinerated in that moment? Like, what was what did everybody else do? Everyone stopped breathing, and Daryl was so mad, and he was like going to explode. 
And then he kind of said some nice words and left. <laughs> and then we all broke into laughter. So it really is probably what we needed. We needed a little bit of, you know, okay, take a deep breath. And, you know, they're an amazing team. They, you know, that power play, whether it was, you know, Lindstrom at the point, you got Shanahan, Iserman, Fedorov, Brett Hall. I mean, it is what it is, you know. So to really think about it, you're like, wow, to be able to beat those guys, when we beat them, when we beat them in game six back home, I actually thought we were going to win the Stanley Cup right there. I said, oh, you know, whatever doubts I might have had in my mind, they uh, they evaporated right away. That was a fun team to watch. Like, definitely, like, I, I it, it sounds like it was a close-knit bunch. I just remember, like we all do, you know, watching watching that run. And you mentioned, you know, uh, Aginla and the fights. But that was a really cool team to watch play. And... You know, one of the, and we probably don't talk about him enough now that I really think about it. Um, I think we've forgotten just how great Mika Kiprasov was as far as being an, like every time I see a goaltender make the Scorpion save, I always think Kiprasov, you know, there's, there's so many moments where I'm like, you know, we probably don't talk about Kiprasov. Like what was, what was he like to have as a teammate? You know what? I've been so fortunate to play with Grant Fuhrer, with Mike Vernon, with Patrick Waugh, and to kind of see Kipper come in as a young guy, and I didn't know what to expect. I mean, he was a third goalie in San Jose, yeah. but his demeanor right away, you just, nothing rattled him, nothing bothered him. You know, you'd sit there, and he could give up eight goals. If you if he gave up five, six goals one game, you knew he was going to come back with a great game the next game. Mm. And some of the saves and the way his demeanor is in the locker room, you never knew if we were winning by five, we were losing by five. He never got rat- he never complained about his D or forwards or we made a mistake. You know, he just uh, went about his business. And my favorite was he used to sit there and talk in the locker room. And then, you know, obviously in the Canadian market, lots of media. And then he, they would walk in. He's like, uh, no English, no English. I'm like, <laughs> I just would start laughing. I mean, he's like, he, he tried to use that for about five years though. So I'm like, come on, Kipper. <laughs> <laughs> who who do you keep in touch with, Craig, from that team? Because uh, you you were obviously a very popular teammate. Who do you keep in contact with? You know what? It's, it's one where you just where you when you see those guys, it just instantly comes back. If you ran into Oliwa, we were in Traverse City one year, and you see Oliwa, wow. and you, you know the Monadors, and we were just out at Jerome's Hall of Fame, and to see the Kobasus, and you know. It, it's weird because everyone's so busy and everyone's going, but when you see that group of guys, you know, whether it's Sean Donovan when we're in Ottawa or it comes right back, you know, Chris Clark and I live maybe a mile in the summer from each other. So we see hmm. each other quite a bit. And, you know, I think obviously Jerome and, you know, the one guy I don't even think I can find, to be honest, is Kipper. <laughs> He's, you know, when, when I noodles talks to Kipper, but I think noodles yeah. is the only one that actually knows what Kipper's doing. He, he, it's like, he's just vanished, but I would love to have, uh, I'd love to see Kipper. I know he came back and I was on the road when he came back. I, w- I would love to see Kipper again. What was the, um, what was the transition like from, from, from player to management for you? Because it, it, I mean, from our perch, it seemed kind of seamless and natural, but listen, you're, you're involved in it. I'm sure there were some hiccups and some bumps along the way as you're learning a, a new part of the industry. How was it for you? You know, I think it was because it was during the middle of the year, it was a little bit awkward at times. I thought it was, I would walk through the room. I wouldn't say anything. I wouldn't talk to anybody. I just kind of went in, saw the co- coaches, went to see the trainers, 
And then one day it was just Jerome was sitting in the locker room by himself and he goes, Hey, you need to act like yourself. You know, you're, you're kind of acting like not Daryl, but well, I said, I don't know what's appropriate. Like, should I talk to you guys? They're like, mm. absolutely. Like we're still friends, you know, we're all in this together. You're just not on the ice anymore. So I think ever since then that kind of made me feel like, okay, you know what? I can still come down and, you know, he'll say, what did you think of this or that? Or did you see something? And easy from upstairs. So I think my relationship, I'm very, you know, easy to talk to. I've been through pretty much everything that these guys have gone through, playing in the minors, putting on waivers. You know, there isn't many things I retire. You know, I've been on the first line, the fourth line, so I can relate to the guys, you know, pretty much every guy. I've been on the first power play. I've been a top guy on the team, but I've also been a guy that's been healthy scratch for long periods of time. So I think all those things uh, let re- let me relate to to the guys really well down there. But it was it was hard to start, and then it got it's smoother now. You know, one of the things I remember Tim Taylor telling me when he retired and he went into management, he said the biggest, most jarring thing for him was the way management talks about the players. And he was like, wait a sec, did you guys talk about me like that? It's unbelievable. <laughs> it's You know what? And they always say, I, you know, like Chris Snow will be like, I'll come out of there. They're like, you're still a player. You're still on the player side. I'm like, somebody's got to stick up for these guys. It's, <laughs> it's you know, because – do you think they wanted to make that sauce pass through the middle, get picked off and scored? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, do you get mad at them a little bit? But it, it, it was unbelievable to hear how they talk about players and how hard they are. Actually, the funny thing is, uh, Jay Feaster was the GM here. They actually erased all the stuff on Ringnet, so I couldn't go in to see what people wrote about me because they're like, <laughs> they said you wouldn't like, I was old, I was 39, I knew it was coming to an end. So I think I took a beating the last last year or so. <laughs> oh my God, that's fantastic. Uh, well, you know, Craig, like, you know, you've been now, it's been almost 11 years. Like I, I, I forgot you retired in uh, February of 2011. And you've been in the front office there. You know, do you think about being a manager one day? Is that something that you would want to do? You know, I think that's always, as a player, you want to play in the NHL. You, you know, on this side, you your competitive juices, you always want to be that guy. You know, Brian would always say, Connie, do you want to sit on the bus and ride it or do you want to drive the bus? And, and I think in the end, you always want to do it. But what it takes is for us to have success, you know, and, and, and do well. And that's where, you know, I think my first goal is to win a Stanley Cup here. And if we could do that, oh, that would, you know, other than playing, there'd be no better feeling for me. And this city deserves it as much as probably everybody's going to say that. But, mm-hmm. you know, in the end, I think the goal is always you want to you wanna prove to people. You know, I proved that I could play in the NHL. No one thought I could do that. You know, you always want to. You know, I, I think watching Marty St. Louis, how he's doing in, in Montreal, and it's that competitive fire. You know, you, you see it in him. And, you know, I believe on this side, uh, it, it's always a goal to, to, to be the guy, to make those decisions. And just how much have you seen the job evolve in the last 10 years? Like, I look at use of statistics. That's clearly more accepted now. 
you know, the new generation of player, there's obviously a big change between what the league looked like 10 years ago and what the league looks like now. How much have you seen it evolve? The game's got so much faster and more exciting. I mean, the young guys, smaller players, obviously a guy like Johnny Gaudreau can have unbelievable success now. You know, you think back, you know, in, in the 90s and, and early 2000s, the hooking and holding. And Brett Hall used to say it all the time. You know, we have such great players, but we don't let them play. We don't let them show off what they can do. I mean, the Pavel Burrys, the hooking, the, the way Jerome used to he'd get mugged by four guys going to the net hatchers, grabbing them. And, you know, I, I think that's a huge thing. The way the game, the skating, the skill level, like what Zegers is doing, it, it's amazing. And I think it's only gotten better, but I think on the, you know, on the management side, the way we, we use analytics, you know, I'm still a little bit old school. I love the analytics. I love going through the things, but with the analytics, I always say the numbers are what the numbers are. So if guys having a great year, it's the eye test and the scouts need to say, okay, is this guy trending up, trending down? Before the numbers pop, we got to kind of figure guys out. Not so much in the draft, but you know, in the NHL, you have to say, okay, is this guy trending this way? Before his numbers pop, we got to get on him. You know, and I think that's uh, it's a combination of everything. Now it's not just one thing; it's 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 a whole bunch of things put together. You know, one one of the ways I remember Brian Burke mentioned this to me once. Um, we were talking about you know eye test versus versus analytics, and he said the way that he looked at it is this: um, you identify initially with your eyes, and then you go to the numbers to see if your eyes are lying to you or not. Does that resonate with you? True, it, it, true. But I also think. Sometimes there's so many players and there's so many guys out there that, you know, you you only have X amount of scouts and they're only at X amount of games. The data is at every game. The data is at every game. So if there is a guy that is off the charts, then we can identify and say, okay, now we got to get in there. And it's a, it's a give and take. We go back and forth with the eye, you know, sometimes it can lead us in the direction to find that player. And then, you know, the same thing with Brian saying it could go the other way also. But for me, I loved I love when they both line up together and that that gives you a good a good feel. Okay, this is a guy we want. And the other thing is character. I mean, a lot of a lot of times, you know, we look a guy like Mangiapane and, you know, Terry Dorn, our scout, was pushing, 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 uh, you know, we got us we got to draft this guy we got to draft him, and then finally we took him and it's just it's all the intangibles maybe that even the analytics and the eye test for some of us that don't see him as much but for terry see him as much as he could to just say we gotta have that guy you know the mm-hmm. same thing when adam fox i remember jim cummins said day one first meeting we get to put a star on a player and he says i want this player Mm. he's special, mm. you know? So, you know, and then we track him all year and, and we end up making a good pick. Obviously we didn't get him, but in the third round, but I think it's that kind of com- common, you know, combination of analytics, all our scouts, management watching, you know, it's, it's really uh, kind of a group thing. It's, it's never just one guy making a decision for sure. It's a it's a great story, you know. It's funny you said you like the tough guys. So we've Lucic. You went to school with Nylon and Jay Miller, and Jim Cummins is the scout 
who talked up Adam uh, Fox and Jim Cummins. That was another tough guy. Tough, yeah. Elliot, when I was in the the minors, you remember Chris Murray? Yes, yes. I remember Chris. Of course, Mary Roberge, oh, Donald Brashear. Oh. Is this Fre- is this Fredericton in Fredericton? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That team was tough. Oh boy. Oh, we had the toughest team I've ever seen, and that's when you didn't even have four lines of forwards. So when you had all those guys together, Jerry Fleming was there and Jerry was a big man. I mean, so we had five to seven guys that on any given night, I was like, holy cow. But, <laughs> and then I got to go to St. Louis and we had Tony Twists and Rudy Pocek oh, and Kelly Chase. And I've always had tough guys, you know, always in uh, Chris Simon. And when we were here in Calgary and, uh, you know, I know it's not, part of the game you know it's not as big a part in game mm-hmm. but it if you ask any player they love toughness even Jerome McGinley who's as tough as anybody uh, he always would say you can never have enough tough guys Greg <laughs> you know <laughs> and that's it's just part of the game and I think you know when Gabranson came in I don't know if it was a preseason game our very first one and Connor Mackey I forget who he hit now but it looked like whoever he hit was coming after him and Gabranson got right in there and I thought, oh, this this is a good teammate right here. I mean, in an exhibition game, sticking up for us, your first, you know, I think it was the first period. I'm thinking, oh, that really kind of put Gabranson on a different level for me right, right, right from the start of camp. All right, here's my last one for you, Craig. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned your agent, Louis Gross. Yes. Now, Louis Gross also represents a certain free agent forward mm. from the Calgary Flames. Mm. Do you ever pull Louis aside and say, enough with this garbage, get this done? <laughs> uh, <yeah>. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I'd be crazy. You know, Brad said it, heaven and earth, yep. you know, on ho- after hours. But yep. It's special, you know, and I do think having a relationship definitely makes it easier. Is it going to make it that much easier? I don't know. You know, <laughs> they both sides kind of, you know, uh, talking to Johnny and they just wanted to wait till, you know, get through the season and get through it and then, and then go from there. But the one thing I know about John, he loves what he loves. He doesn't like change. He, uh, you know, my thing is he loves records. You know, and he loves all that kind of stuff. And he wants to be the best at all times. I mean, the one thing when Bob Hartley was here, he asked me, Craig, who do you think the most competitive person on the bench is? And I think I went through a couple names. I, this was John's first year. And I said, uh, you know, Mark Giordano. I went through it. He goes, Goudreau hates to lose. I'm like, really? I can't, you know, be enough in the press box. You don't get that sense. So the competitors of fire in him and him always wanting to be the best, you know, that's where we're hoping he's grown up here. He's been a part of it. And, uh, you know, that's why we want to get this thing done and, and get him back here long-term. Uh, if he, if he likes records that much, you tell him, uh, Johnny, you can only leave when you break Kent Nelson's record of 131 points with the Calgary flames until then you're a flame. That's amazing. Well, my good friend Al McKinnis has got the assist here. So I'm like, one day, hopefully Johnny can break the, uh, I'm like, it's weird to have a, the assist be a, a defenseman, but that's just showing you how good Al was. Yep. Absolutely. This has been a lot of fun and you've been really generous with your time. Uh, Craig, thanks so much. Listen, uh, playoffs on the horizon. Best of luck to the Calgary Flames. Um, big things, big things coming for this team. That's uh, no surprise for anyone that's watched them regularly this season. Craig, thanks so much for stopping by today. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. 
Elliot, that was really great. Uh, I want to thank Craig Conroy, Assistant General Manager of the Calgary Flames, for stopping by the podcast. Okay, we're going to stay in Alberta as we say goodbye. Elliot, taking us out as a group of recent law graduates out of Calgary who wrote tunes during the last couple of years of school. From their self-titled four-track EP, here's Dim Summer with Pool Boy. 32 Thoughts, the podcast. I've been